Hey friends, I get the profound joy and pleasure of di talking to different experts in different fields, or uh, experts probably isn't the right word, um, different leaders and uh, thought leaders and theologians, and I've talked to people in the academy, I've talked to people in the church, I've talked to just very normal people in the, uh, in the pews and in the pulpit. Uh, turns out whenever you have a big platform, a lot of people like uh, talking on it, or at least will receive an invitation to be on it, and today... I'm going to be uh, filling what, what has been a void up until now, uh, which is the field of Christian apologetics, of course, with a lot of people that I've talked to and a lot of conversations I've been trying to facilitate, Christian apologetics um, is, is implied in all of that. It's, it's kind of impossible to proclaim Christian doctrine without trying to explain it to people who don't already understand it. If you're not doing apologetics in some kind of basic sense, you really are neglecting the Christian faith, in my opinion. So um, I was able to speak with Andy Miller III over at Wesley Biblical Seminary a few weeks ago about biblical inerrantism and the role that different academic institutions are playing. I've also been able to speak with David De Silva over at, um, what is it, Ash Ashland Theological Seminary, David uh, Watson over at United. Uh, so there's, you know, in the academy, there are a number of people that are engaged in these conversations about, okay, what's the Wesleyan doctrinal heritage? How do we offer that to the world? How do we distinctly have a voice amongst all the other voices that are offering the world Christ? And so today I'm, I'm really happy to welcome Steve and Isaac Blakemore to the show. They are a father-son duo serving over at Wesley Biblical Seminary. Uh, Steve is the father, and he is the professor of Christian thought at Wesley Biblical Seminary. And if you don't know where that is, that's in Jackson, Mississippi. He's the author of a recently released book called Recovering the Soul, and is the author of many scholarly essays, as well as popular level articles on philosophical and theological topics of contemporary concern. His areas of specialization include moral theology, that's Christian ethics, systematic and philosophical theology, as well as contemporary uh, problems of progressive Christianity and postmodern theology. So we will definitely be talking about that stuff today. He's an ordained minister as a pastor of a small congregation in rural Mississippi, so he and I are going to get along just fine. I like rural ministry. Uh, he's the father of four sons, grandfather of four grandchildren, husband of Carolyn Berg Blakemore. So, uh, of course, Isaac is one of his four sons who's, who's with us here. Uh, he's the co-founder and executive director of the John and Charles Wesley Center for Christian Thought and Apologetics. He's an ordained minister, sought-after speaker, husband, and father. Isaac's research focuses on the interface of science, philosophy, and religion, and so we'll have a link to his website. Well, we'll have a series of links for each of these gentlemen if you want to follow up with them after this uh, conversation ends. But at this point, I'm going to welcome you guys. Welcome to the Plain Spoken Podcast. I'm so glad you can be with me this morning. Uh, Steve, how are you? I'm doing very well. Very good. And Especially Isaac, I'm an older guy. Isaac, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Great to uh, be invited and happy to be here. Yeah, yeah. I think we're going to have a good conversation. Um, I, I appreciate you guys letting me know a bit about yourselves before we got started. I just want to, uh, for people who are curious about your your backgrounds a little bit more, Steve was a United Methodist uh, elder for a couple decades, but uh, is no longer with the United Methodist Church. Are both of you now with AIM? That's correct. Okay, the Association of Independent Methodists. So, uh, I'm a global Methodist elder at this point. You gentlemen um, surely have seen the interview I did uh, with the Association of Independent Methodist guys 
yeah. and uh, hopefully you feel like they did a good job. A lot of people responded very well to the to the AIM video. Um, so anyways, as so far as I'm concerned, Wesleyanism, and Andrew and I talked about this, uh, is a lot bigger than any one denomination. It's a, it's a heritage, a, a doctrinal heritage in history. I would also argue it's... Um, the, the heritage is even more important in a practical sense of how it is that we create disciples. We may or may not come back to that, but um, all three of us are very much informed by having read John Wesley and being familiar with um, the development of early Wesleyanism and the gifts that, that Methodism has to offer to the church today. So um, are you both of the mind—let's see, I'll start with Isaac. Uh, I'm of the mind that Methodism has a distinctly beneficial thing to offer— our uh, contemporary culture, that, that we can answer questions and offer solutions unlike any other tradition if we refamiliarize ourselves uh, with our background. How, how do you feel about that statement? Do you think that we are in that sense? I would even use the word superior to other traditions in what we have to offer. Uh, do you think I'm, I'm too full of Methodism, too full of myself, or do you think that, that we really do have a distinct doctrinal and, and practical heritage and history to offer the world that is super beneficial. No, yeah, I, um, I think Methodism, if you go to John Wesley's original sort of intent for Methodism, that it was going to be uh, a movement that could include um, any and all uh, Orthodox Christian traditions into it. I mean, Wesley himself stays an Anglican priest. He doesn't become a nonconformist like his mother. He doesn't start Methodism and, and Wesleyanism, you know, he doesn't he doesn't go that he he stays an Anglican. And even in uh, what is a true Methodist, that essay he writes, he says, um, basically on on certain details that may be uh, not much to argue about, we should put those disagreements aside, and we should come together um, in what we do have as being trying to be a united church, trying to be uh, those believers who want to reach. The world for Jesus. And so I think in that Methodism, uh, at least foundationally, has that focus that is different. It's different than maybe the Reformed tradition. It's different than um, a lot of other Protestant groups because Methodism saw itself as trying to be uh, a movement that could make disciples. And I think if Methodism today finds and rediscovers that then it, it moves beyond just maybe some type of sectarianism where well, I'm this kind of Methodist or I'm this kind of Methodist, but we see it as, no, we are trying to be the singular body of Christ in the world with all Christians. And in that Methodism then can say, and we have this way of reaching uh, sort of the, the, the world at large, and we can bring Wesleyan theology, Arminian theology into that, which is a great thing. Um, and so, yes, I think, it is unique in that sense. Um, and maybe it's unique in that sense just because it doesn't try to uh, pigeonhole everybody into some type of uh, either group of total depravity or predestination to where it, this is. We can reach people for Christ because we believe that um, that's the what the Bible calls us to do. And I think Methodism takes that on in a, in a very unique way. So am I right in picking up that you would be one of the many voices that believes that Wesleyanism is synonymous in many senses with Arminianism? I would say so. I mean, I'm sure uh, if you were to try to split hairs, you could you could you could look at uh, theological differences between the two men. Um, but I think overall, 
it I would I would imagine that they are far more similar than dissimilar. And so in that, um, I think they complement each other in a lot oh, of ways. Well, okay. The, when you say the two men, you mean uh, Arminius and and Wesley. Right. Uh, so okay. So the 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 thing behind my question there is uh, I've I've had a two part series with a, a pastor in the Global Methodist Church named Matt Sickle who who argues that really if if you're going to be a Wesleyan there is no room in any Wesleyan or Methodist denomination for anyone of a reformed theological bent. And anyone who's listening to us who doesn't understand what we're talking about, we're talking past you. It has to do with the continuum of God's sovereignty on one end, how much is he in charge of everything that happens versus our free will on the other? How much free agency do we have? Reformed uh, believers believe that that really we don't have much free will and that God's sovereignty rules over everything and that that free will is in many senses an illusion, whereas uh, uh, the extremes of, of Arminianism comes close to semi-Pelagianism sometimes, depends on who you're talking to, but where we have a lot of free will and agency and, and God for the in many ways sits back and lets us uh, do things whether or not it's it's in accordance with his will. So there uh, it sounds like uh, uh, is is the right title for you uh, Isaac uh, are you well you've gotten your masters so is it well Reverend Blakemore that's what I should call you right? We, it'll right. be Reverend Blakemore for you and then S- Steve you'll be Dr. Blakemore. How about that whenever I'm feeling particularly formal? Um, okay, well, you can just call me Steve. And I can do that too. Yeah, Isaac. That's what people call us. So, so are you? Are you of the same mind uh, as your son that that a big part of the task of Wesleyan apologetics needs to be explicating um, Arminian theology with respect to human free will and our own agency and and uh, authority in life? Well, yes, I agree, and I like I like what Isaac said. Mm-hmm. He's precisely on target when he talks about i don't know that this was his term but you have to parse out Uh what we mean by all of these topics like free will Uh versus sovereign predestination there's a sense in which the real distinction goes to not whether or not our wills are unfallen and therefore in some sort of bondage uh, and therefore God has to predestine who he's going to save and because free will can't operate. The real, the real issue is the extent of grace. Mm-hmm. And for Wesley, as was true for, for Arminius, the viewpoint is something much more robust. Grace, grace doesn't begin post-fall. Mm-hmm. Grace begins in the act of creation. Grace begins as God makes us in his image and be bearers of his image. And therefore, there's a sense in which grace could not be, the grace of possibility of responding to God could not be lost completely. And then in Jesus Christ, that image is restored uh, by the incarnation. So it's it's really free grace Uh that enables free response to the free offer of God to all people. And that's, that's the message that we need to reclaim because, um, and that may sound like I'm trying to skirt the issue, but I'm really not, because ultimately anybody in the Methodist tradition who thinks, oh, look, I chose Jesus. Aren't I Aren't I a good boy or a good girl? Mm-hmm. I responded to the grace that was at work in my life far be- before I ever thought about this. You know, that I was not simply floating along in a sea of, uh, of neutrality. Mm-hmm. 
and I made a choice. No, everything God is bringing us to himself. Mm-hmm. And therefore, um, in that sense, just as Isaac said, the Wesleyan tradition has something significant to offer within the, the Protestant tradition, because the Protestant tradition has been largely dominated by the Calvinist Lutheran and the Calvinist and Lutheran discussions are quite at odds with each other sometimes. Mm. In the modern context, yes, um, we need to help explicate why it is that we say um, grace is is available to all people. Um, if I could just shift slightly and add and build on what Isaac said. Go ahead. Um, Isaac, I, I'd like to hear you your take on this as well. But um, one of the things that Methodist people, people who want to say we stand in the lineage of John Wesley, mm-hmm. they don't recognize is that John Wesley did not see himself as an innovator of anything. John Wesley saw himself as looking past the Reformation. He saw himself as looking into the pre-Nicene and the post-Nicene fathers of the church. Yeah, he talked about the primitive church. Yes, and bringing, bringing into the contemporary world he was in this um engagement with um with the earliest of of christian theologian and doctrinal formation Mm -hmm. um and i that's that's a significant thing right there and he reached into the east the eastern orthodox world and into the latin speaking christian world Mm -hmm. yeah i think i'm right about that isaac yeah i think for john wesley because he was so well read um, and because of the influences he had both um, from from his mother and the influence she had in his life and, and sort of uh, the direction she pushed him. And then from people like Malcolm Brown and others who Wesley learned from and read um, and even in his library, which is so um, sort of robust and drawing from traditions from the Desert Fathers, uh, from the Eastern tradition, from the Latin tradition, um, and then even his own Anglicanism and then being in 18th century uh, England at the time and just sort of everything I think that took place in his life for Wesley and I think this is what we have to remember as Wesleyans or Methodists um, is that John Wesley being 200-ish years after the Reformation or whatever the exact timeline is there he he is d- deeply desiring to become more orthodox and by more orthodox how do I become more like the ancient church and not move towards more schism or something different. But how do I how do I live the, the life of the apostles? How do I live the life of the early church? Because I think what Wesley saw was if we can get back to that, and if we can understand our 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 faith and uh, and, and Christian living in in that regard, then we not only become more like Jesus, but we do become more effective at winning people over to Jesus and bringing them into the faith, because it takes the focus, I think, not so much on looking at what are our differences theologically or or with theological opinion like theologumenon, um, but it, it moves to saying, what is it that the church united around and that the, the, the earliest Christians were doing and believing, um, because you have such rapid growth even under 
horrible oppression. And uh, I think Wesley saw that. I think he he was inspired by that. I think it's why in his library, um, he is so well read on, on the on the on the uh, church fathers, not just because they're sort of first or older or interesting, but I think uh, it profoundly influenced what he came to understand and needed to be true in the life of a Christian, even a Christian living uh, in 18th century for him, that would have been the modern world in the 18th century world or in 18th century England. Um, I think for him, that was very important was how do we become like the ancient church and how do we apply that then in the contemporary modern context? And I think that's what Methodism needs to do today is to say, how do we become like the ancient church, but make it to where it's, it's a contemporary enough in the way we explain it to people to draw them into the deep roots of the Christian faith. They're not just something that starts 16th century, 17th century, 18th century, somewhere in there. Well, let's talk about the early church. Um, let's talk about them in light of the primary orientation point for us, which is Christian apologetics, but also through the lens of Wesleyanism. Um, my familiarity with the early church comes from basic degree uh, work, reading Justo Gonzalez and uh, Eusebius, and then more recently leading, uh, reading Alan Kreider's um, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. I don't know if either of you have had the the joy and pleasure of reading that, but that that radically reoriented my ministry. The early church was known for being more moral than even the philosophers, very uh, strict in their uh, moral adherence. They were known for being very judgmental in some ways, proclaiming judgment uh, against society publicly, uh, but also publicly loving one another uh, quite dramatically, sharing, uh, not valuing material goods very much, but living semi-communally, depending on where and when you're talking about and um, seeing the church as, as an extended family, uh, interrupting even their own biological family. There are many other markers of uh, early Christianity, but what we see is something radically different from the contemporary American political or uh, church landscape. How much of that should Methodism be reclaiming versus, uh, so there's one thing of just saying, hey, we need to reclaim some doctrine. We need to talk about Christian perfection more, sanctification more. We need to talk about the work of grace more. It's one thing to say that. It's another thing to say, we really need to revitalize our churches, make them much more uh, interpersonal, make them much more invasive in people's lives to the point where um, church really becomes something very different from what it has been. Um, so, so Isaac, you were able to speak uh, a good deal about Wesley's reclaiming the early church um, Steve, do you agree with the way that I've kind of recapitulated the early Christian aesthetic, and do you think that authentic Methodism really is making a bed towards restoring a lot of that? Well, first of all, let me say this, that in terms of reclaiming the sort of the, the way of life um, that is manifest in the 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 second century, the 100s, the 200s, the 300s, the 400s, um, in, in Christian faith, we need to re re remember that there was this, there was a theological doctrinal ferment that was going on, that was, that, that caused uh, collisions and crises. And so clarification about doctrinal beliefs was incredibly important for the for the leaders, the bishops, the theologians of the early church, and so 
the way of life that that the early Christians began to manifest was the result of real clarity about their doctrinal beliefs. Let me let me say back to you what I think I just heard you say, which was that their way of life flowed out of doctrinal clarity. Yes. So it's of your mind that the early church was marked far and wide by doctrinal clarity? What I'm saying is it's not an either or. The early church's struggle was to achieve doctrinal clarity for the Catholic, sure. small c Catholic faith. Sure. Because how you understand who Christ is in the incarnation. Mm -hmm. If 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 Christ is not fully God, and if Christ is also not fully human, mm -hmm. then it's going to change the way you think about the nature of salvation. Well, I think what it, what I I think you and I would both agree on, what all of us would hopefully agree on, is what we believe informs how we live. I think that's what you're you're centering us on, and so there is a dialogical relationship between what we believe and how we live. And so whenever I'm talking about the distinctive markers yeah. of how the early church lived, you're pointing us back to what they believed and the, the doctrinal uh, heritage of what they held. So but I have a reason. I have a reason for wanting to do that. Sure. If I could just go ahead interject here. Yeah. That it's not enough for contemporary people in Christianity, whether we're talking about Methodist or any other spiritual heritage, mm -hmm. it's not enough for us to, to embrace and engage in in the uh, uh, a proper form of Christian existence, mm -hmm. or it because the 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 form has to be informed, sure, and has to grow out of what we believe about the nature of reality, what we believe about the nature of our own lives, what we believe about the nature of our relationships together in Jesus Christ, and how we relate then to the world outside of the church and the faith. And all of that is incredibly important. Um, and so in large measure, what has to happen in my view, and I've been at this game for a while now, is that Methodist people need to take seriously Christian doctrine, very seriously Christian doctrine, because when you when you basically come out of a pietistic movement warm heartedness good feeling loving embrace of this that or the other is is wonderful and yet it can get off it can get off the track pretty quickly if you don't have some sort of guardrails doctrinally speaking that are helping us know why we live this way why we should feel this way why we should choose this way so reclaiming real uh, theological understanding is incredibly important yeah. for the for a new way of life to be be manifest, healthy, yes, in a healthy way in the church. So there there are people that that we're all aware of who don't have any energy for doctrine whatsoever. They'll just say, "Hey, just give me Jesus. I don't need all this doctrine." And what I think all three of us would would say pretty firmly is. You don't get Jesus without doctrine. Doctrine is the lens through which you see Jesus rightly, 
And uh, even if you don't think you have doctrine, you do. There is no way to have a relationship with Christ outside of some kind of doctrine. And so we are all morally obligated to make sure that our relationship with Christ is, is in some sense, informed by or mediated by true doctrine. So that, that really does uh, set a good foundation for me asking the question again, how much of Methodism do you guys think um, depends on, uh, well, okay, so John Wesley talked about a dead orthodoxy versus uh, uh, something that is matched in the way that we live, you know, so it is possible to believe the right things without having those things translate into a transformed life. How much of reclaiming Wesleyanism is only doctrinal versus reclaiming a, a distinct way of life marked by holiness and and several um, fruits that that people on the outside can see? How much... How much do you think that the global Methodist Church, say, should hang its hat on holiness of heart and life, and then how much do you think we would be wise just to focus on reclaiming the doctrines of the Scripture way of salvation and and preventing grace and and sanctification? Isaac, what do you think about all that? I think the the hard part is how do you make holiness either a palatable for people in the 21st century to understand it as something not just really archaic? Okay. How do you actually make it to where they say, wait a minute, it seems like you've now made Christianity tougher. Like I have to, like, I can't just come to Jesus and be forgiven and that be okay. And I have this feeling about my life, mm -hmm. but now you're saying like, I, I have to be holy, something more challenging. It has to be yeah. harder. Yeah. So that's the number one problem. Like in Methodism, this has been the problem is that there's been so much where if you go to like a revival or a camp meeting and they talk about holiness, mm -hmm. it seems like it is something that only the old blue hairs are, are talking about. Like yeah. only old people want to do this. And so then it, anybody under the age of 50 just sort of dismisses it as this old term that comes out of the holiness movement or that only old people are interested in, but it has nothing to do with modern life because we've been fed this idea that there's this sort of very em emotional come to Jesus experience. And that's all you really need is you need to feel really bad and guilty about the stuff you do have sort of a, a conversion experience. And then as long as you continue to love the Lord um, and maybe ask for forgiveness every now and then like that, that's sort of the bar you'd have to achieve to be a good Christian. And that, that is, I think why, when you look statistically at everything that's come out either in sociological studies or, um, well, particularly sociological studies uh, over the past 20 something years, right? You look at the work of Christian Smith um, when he looked at uh, the religious sort of worldview of young people who grew up in the 90s and early 2000s. And they're basically what he called moralistic therapeutic deists. Like they yeah. just believe that they don't need a, a redeemer. Um, sin is not their problem. Jesus loves everybody. Everybody's inherently good and goes to heaven. And it's all nice because if you just love Jesus and have good feelings towards other people, then that seems to be the message that they were taught yeah. throughout the nineties and the two thousands. And now those people are 40 years old, 30 something, 40 years old. Um, and then even the rise of the nuns, right? The non-religious affiliates in the United States over the past say 10 years mm -hmm. has skyrocketed. Um, and why is that? And I think it's because in it's not just the problem of Methodism and since that's what we're talking about, how, no one has made holiness or that type of message contemporary. They've not made it to where 
you get it. So to answer the, the question, yeah, that needs to be something that's done. Holiness needs to actually be preached, but it needs to not just be where you use very archaic language in a contemporary setting, and then you just try to force it on people. You, you need to say, if you want to be like Jesus and just give me Jesus, okay, if you want to be like Jesus, Jesus actually demanded far more of his disciples than what you think. Jesus didn't just call his disciples to love him. He said, if you love me, then sur surrender everything about your life. Give up your family, give up your loved ones, give up your life and follow me. When Jesus does the sword verse, you know, oh, I've come to separate mother and father. He actually sends the apostles out to tell that message to not to not to Gentiles, but that's that comes right on the heels of going out to Jewish people. And that was to say, if you really want the Messiah, then all of these cultural things you've held, like your your cultural, your relationship to your parents, all of these relationships that you have been told make you a good Jew you have to throw it away. I am here. I have come. And if you want to love and follow me, then everything about your life has to come and be given to me. And we throw that out and we say, well, Jesus has this toned down message of love. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where Methodist churches and the global Methodist or whoever they need to say, okay, how do I make holiness a real front and center issue, but teach it in a contemporary way? And how do I tie it then to a theology of love for people and for God. And so you are coming to the scripture way of salvation or the, the works of mercy, the works of grace. And to say, you cannot separate these things. The, this is a, this is a total package. You have to have holiness. You have to have works of piety, works of mercy. These are the works of grace. This is what a transformed life that has come to love Jesus looks like. It looks like all of these things. And if it's lacking any of these things, then it's really lacking being transformed to look like the life of a Christian, a true, a real Christian whose life has been changed by encountering Jesus. So I think the orientation point that is is actually undergirding all three of us while we're talking, you know, uh, Steve, having corresponded with you before we turn on the cameras today, if Wesleyanism, well, forget about Wesleyanism, if if young people today are going to be disciples, then it is incumbent upon the church to articulate the faith in a new way for a new generation. Every You know, the church is always one generation away from extermination, and so that means that, that we have to do a good job of indoctrinating people. So that's why you guys care about doctrine, because doctrine is what informs the spiritual DNA of authentic believers. And what is clear for all to see is that the youngest generation uh, in the West broadly, and in America uh, even, is not being drawn to Christ. And so there are different ways of explaining that. And one particular explanation is we have not done a good job of talking about our doctrine, which is also obviously true. Starting in the early 20th century, you see a marked decline in the doctrinal quality of what many denominations, especially Methodism, offered its people in the Sunday school movement. They just dumbed it down, uh, not just yeah. gradually, but extremely over just a couple decades. So some of that is obviously true. But what I admire about the Reformed tradition that, that Wesleyanism does not have, again, Reformed is coming out of John Calvin and uh, very much believing in God's sovereignty and that he, for reasons we don't understand, has foreordained several things to take place, and that one of these things that God has ordained 
is that there will be generations that are relatively faithless. And so as the church continues to proclaim the eternal gospel, you're going to find entire towns or entire eras that are not drawn to Christ. And so what I've seen growing up is a, a Methodist tradition that is desperate to do whatever it takes to get young people in the doors. I would say they fetishize young people, and, yeah. and that has not at all resulted in young people coming close. So uh, in my head, what I've been inclined to say is, look, I'm going to talk about holiness the same way I talk about everything in the Bible. I'm going to use biblical language. I'm going to try and apply it to modern-day living. There, and if people are not drawn to that, it's not because I'm doing a bad job necessarily. It's because they're not drawn to that. They don't desire holiness. So the moment I start talking about holiness, if people's eyes glaze over and they're like, ah, I don't want it. Well, in my head, I'm just going, well, you're reprobate then. You're a child of the evil one, and Christ is not calling you. Um, that really doesn't fit well with Wesleyan theology, which says, Jesus calls everybody, everybody can come, we just need to learn to market the message and tailor it the right way to everybody, and then they will come. And I'm just not sure that that's borne out by historical reality. Um, so uh, that's that's not to, to say that I think people who say the opposite are stupid, but that is to say, I get the sense that both of you kind of are in a different place with, with this than me, that it really is... Uh, that we're not doing a good job of, of talking about our doctrine, and that if we did, more people would come. So um, Isaac started the ball rolling in this direction. I kind of gave a little bit of pushback. So Steve, uh, what, what's there to be said that kind of leads us in the direction away from Reformed theology that's kind of indifferent to whether or not people come on board, back to a Wesleyan theology that says, no, we have, we have some responsibility here, and here's what we can and should do that would make the case for Christ better. Well, a couple of things here. Let me just put it this way. When we talk about recovering Christian doctrine mm -hmm. for the church, recovering it within the church first, because that's where all recovery has to begin. People can think of Christian doctrine as primarily a list of beliefs that you can put on a board and you check them off. Mm -hmm. However, Christian doctrine is far more far more in keeping with what traditionally in theology we have called dogma. Okay. Now, dogma is a bad word for people because it sounds like you're just intransigent, immovable. But dogma essentially means what is the bedrock upon which all of life is built? Mm -hmm. Another way of saying it is, what is the view of reality? How does reality work? What does reality encompass? All of reality. And therefore, Christian dogma is a totalizing view of reality. Right, Christian? And so Christian doctrine, Christian dogma, and Christian theology is the endeavor to proclaim this totalizing view of reality that lays claim on all of our lives. So when we begin to talk about holiness, for instance, and people's eyes glaze over, mm -hmm. They may glaze over for any number of reasons, but I suspect that one of the reasons their eyes glaze over is because they have no reason to believe that being holy is really a possibility for their lives. And so when we're going to talk to people about being holy, we have to say, well, how is being holy? really simply a matter of being fully 
and completely human as well, God created us to be. Steve, now, let, that's a, let me come in just real quick. dogmatic issue. So what I want to, we live in an era where there are young people who are drawn to being dogs. You know, there there's a furry culture where people wear dog gear and they, they believe that they're tapping into some kind of dog essence. We live in an era where people think that they can switch from one sex to the other, even though biologically that's ridiculous. I don't think we have a younger generation that is so moored to reality that they cannot imagine holiness. I, I when, when they can imagine becoming dogs, when they can imagine changing sexes, then to tell me that they can't imagine being holy strikes me as strange. But, but it, it really does seem to me that they do not at all desire holiness. They are not at all interested in it. And to me, the, the interest in and desire for holiness comes from a hatred of self and a hatred of sin, which is married to the self. And so I, I believe that what John Wesley preached and the early Methodists preached was rooted in a hatred of sin that comes from a, a, an, an acknowledgment of one's own sinfulness and in slavery to it, and then out of the bad news, offering that good news of you can be free from it. And so tapping into that that nasty rejection of, of the awful and then offering a solution that's something that I don't hear hardly anyone making the case other than these Puritan-sounding Reformed people. So so I, I want to come back to you, Steve, because I did cut you off midstream, but I, what do you say to, to, to someone who says, no, they're, they're hearing about holiness, and their, their imaginations are just fine. They're just not interested, and in order to get them interested, the starting place is not look how good God is and look at how good his grace is, but it's look how bad you are and look how powerful sin is in your life. Well, once again, now, what you've described mm -hmm. is a dogmatic vision of the nature of reality yes, and the nature of human existence. Now, young people don't think of themselves as fundamentally enslaved. Our culture has taught them that essentially you aren't enslaved to anything, right? You're not enslaved to sin. You're, you're an absolutely free creature to redefine yourself however you want to be. So whatever your perceptions are, that's who you are. So pursue your authentic self. But when we begin to talk about sin, we've already established, we've already established a worldview. And so in order to understand what sin is, we have to make sure people, this is within the church, starting within the church, sin is not something that is sort of the all-inclusive term that in incorporates all of the bad things we've ever done. Sin is not sins, right? Sin is somehow this enslavement that we have. And therefore, people don't realize that they're enslaved. So how do we begin to approach them in such a way that we articulate to them a vision of what it really means to be a human being in light of the Christian faith, in light of the Christian doctrine, in light of Christian worldview, so to speak. So it's your conviction um, that, that young people, I, I think I just heard you say outright, they don't know that they are enslaved to sin. No, they don't. So there's hardly anybody, there's hardly anybody who's been in a United Methodist Church, I'll just use the United Methodist Church, mm -hmm. in the last 50 years, who believed that they were really slaves to sin that Christ had to set free. Most people have, uh, uh, Will Williman at Duke 
divinity school was correct. The, the main Methodist doctrine of the last 50 years was God is nice and we should be nice too. So what I've wondered is, I, I think that people deep down do know, I think every single person deep down knows that they are a, a terribly flawed and nasty creature and that all of that rhetoric is a form of denialism that just doesn't hold water. So we say it over and over, it's like propaganda from the, the communist regime, like it just becomes the, the, the lies that we're expected to speak in order to get through society, but deep down, Everybody knows. I mean, I think this is what animates. If you've seen figures on uh, anxiety and depression for young people, it's astronomical. And I think that only comes from a realization on a mass level that individuals cannot invent themselves, that they are not free, that they're enslaved to many things on a daily basis that enslave them, that cause this misery and this this disjunctive uh, mode of being. So in, in my head, the role of the church is not giving them a new construct that is completely foreign to them. Rather, it's speaking to something that doesn't even have language for them, but that they're familiar with on a daily basis that is informing this self-hatred and this anxiety and depression. Um, and and I, I say that not to be argumentative, but it's, if we misdiagnose the problem, then the solution we offer is not going to be sufficient for the task at hand. And it has to do with um, what I what I think both of you speak to is the right mode of apologetics. Is it winsome, invitational, um, uh, in some sense, uh, well, warm-hearted, or is it properly done, especially in this age, in a confrontational and aggressive manner that makes it so that people can no longer avoid or deny anymore? I think that's what uh, that that latter method is what we are seeing, you know, street corner preaching, very confrontative. We associate that with Reformed theology in particular. But um, if if the problem is that people don't—here's how I'm framing it, and then Isaac, you take over. Um, if we are not—if young people are not aware of sin and it's just a foreign concept to them, then we can lovingly come alongside them, create this, this alternative worldview that then they learn to live into and see that it fits a bit better. But if it's actually something that they're already aware of and avoiding through drugs, uh, diversions, um, uh, propaganda, then there's a wake-up that's needed, a, a harsh, cold reality that ne they need to be called into, uh, in which apologetics looks very different. So, um, Isaac, how about you speak to that, and then I don't speak at all, and then we go to Steve, and, and he alley-oops whatever you set up. Yeah, I think— so this is what I think the problem is. Um, I think what has happened is that the church has done a very poor job in communicating several things. So first of all, uh, Soren Kierkegaard, the 19th century Danish Lutheran uh, existentialist, his he has this huge critique of Danish Lutheranism at the time because they were basically teaching that um, to be a Christian just meant that you lived sort of in... Denmark, and you were just your either your parents or you got taken to the church. You were what he called just the once saved people. So you just you were sort of saved by proxy. If your parents had you baptized as an infant, you were saved completely, whether you ever made um, a commitment to the Lord or not. And so there was this cultural phenomenon there in Denmark where people pushed back on Kierkegaard and they said, "Hey, man, we're this is a good thing. Why are you trying to make this harder?" And then he critiqued the pastors and he said, "The pastor will stand up." and say, you can do nothing without God. And then people will say, well, 
I can do my business. I can do this. I can do that. I don't seem to need God to do these things. But the pastor told me I can do nothing without God. Kierkegaard mm-hmm. said a better message would be if you told people, here is what you can begin to do now as Christians. And you give them something that they go home that week and they realize wasn't quite as hard to achieve as they thought. And now they they said, I'm doing something in my faith that is I'm, I'm I, can, I can do this. I can I can like move towards becoming more of a Christian than just being sort of told I'm wretched and horrible and I can't do anything without God. I think that's one thing that has happened in the Methodist church and in all churches is we've said, oh, you're going to hell. And so sin then becomes this sort of, I don't know, this this sort of thing that lurks over you and it's going to send you to hell. But then I think a lot of people say, but I'm not really that bad. Like, okay, there might be things that I do that, in the religious context would be wrong, but I'm not a murderer. I'm not a really horrible, evil person. Why would God send me to hell? There are so many worse people I know, or they know very hypocritical people who claim to be these very devout Christians. And I think people, I think as you grow up, you look at your life and you go, if, if just avoiding hell is the message of this, like, God's not going to send me to hell because look, I'm pretty good. Like I don't do many bad things. I love people. In fact, I seem to be more tolerant than most Christians. Why would God send me to hell? And so that's kind of been the whole message is you just try to get saved to avoid hell. And that's not the message that the early church had. The early church, the message was become transformed now so that you can live now as a transformed new person in the kingdom that Jesus seems to commits and bring to earth in his resurrection and that so it's this now and not yet kingdom and that we come to play a role in the kingdom now nt wright talks about this and the apostle paul is the first one to talk about this Wright just reads and interprets paul as saying this is this is the the fundamental christian message that you need to be you need to be saved and transformed so that now your life matters and who you become and you become this person because the kingdom is something we're living into now, not, not waiting to go to heaven far, far away. See, that gets lost because at the Reformation, so much of what happened was all of the churches that pulled away, they begin to say, well, let's throw out as much anything that's Catholic as we can. And so you throw out all of this theology that has developed over 1500 years you just throw it all as anything that could be even labeled catholic at all they just they wanted to move away from it and so you have that you don't have a very strong sacramental theology that young people are being taught that the sacraments this is something mysterious that you are being a part of like your life is being changed and confronted with god and when you come to church this is a sacred experience instead we build very cool looking churches with stages nothing seems holy nothing seems like it's different and so it's it just does not resonate i think with people's experience that oh sin is my problem maybe maybe i'm not that bad maybe i just life is hard and i'm trying to figure it out and understand who i am and then everything else competes for our attention and it gives instant gratification whereas the transformed life of a christian that that requires delayed gratification Everything on social media is is made to give you a dopamine hit. So you're seeking dopamine constantly from something that's going to instantly gratify you. And if you're told that hell and heaven, once you're dead, is it? That's at the end of your life. That's that's like the most delayed gratification ever. You got to either find out that you're 
delayed punished or delayed gratified rather than saying there are things about my life that I might wish to be different. And maybe what I need is to be changed and transformed because I can become something now where I'm not depressed. I'm not anxious. I can come into this world, this life that's, that's wanting me to do something every day and, and every week and to be different. So that's what I think. And I would just finish with this. Who's mirrored a holy life for most young people, not their parents, maybe their grandparents, mm -hmm. but probably not. So you can't just look to young people and say, oh, they have all these problems. Yeah, they have problems because the past two generations have done nothing to really encourage them to do that. It's either been this in extremely fundamentalist theology where then younger people encounter any any type of pushback from the secular world, philosophically, scientifically, and then they're just told, oh, well, don't worry about that. The Bible has to be absolutely literal in every single way this way, but we're going to give you no, no answers to think about it more broadly. And then they go, well, that doesn't seem to make sense. That does not sort of mesh up with my experience of the world. Or they've just been told, just here, do this, or we go to church, and if it takes one hour and five minutes, it's too long. Church should be one hour. The preaching should be 20 minutes. We should have some announcements, some fun things, get in, get out, and we'll see you next week. And we might do communion once a month if we're a very holy Methodist church. Nothing is sacred. And I think when you lose that, sin is not that people don't see that about themselves. It's that life is far more complicated. And to convince somebody, hey, you're right, you're decently, like you're not going to probably be a horrible, evil person in in the way that we define it. But I guarantee you, you're not as satisfied with who you are deep down as you wish you could be. I bet there are things you do that you sometimes regret. But what if even that could be changed about you? What if you could become somebody that right now, today, you could begin living into becoming and fulfilling who God has called you to be? And it doesn't just begin and end at a prayer at an altar, but it begins now and it ends never because you live into the kingdom now and you live into the fulfillment of the kingdom that is to come. I mean, maybe that's the message that needs to be out there because if you just try to tell people they're sinful and it's this horrible thing and it's going to send them to hell, most people are just going to, I think young people will say, yeah, maybe, but I'm a pretty good person. And so why should I go to hell and not you? Or why would your God who loves people send me to hell over being a pretty decent person uh, when you say you're a Christian, but you are a pretty nasty person. So I would just throw that out there. Okay, Steve, I, I said I wouldn't, uh, I'm not going to directly, but I have a quote from Stephen Lawson that I think is in, in con uh, conversation with what Isaac just offered. The quote is, salvation is not making a good person better, nor making a sick person well. It is making a dead person alive. In Christ, so uh, that what what do you think about? I mean, that that would be a very harsh, very stark, confrontational approach to evangelism and Christian apologetics. What I just heard Isaac say is that approach talks past people; it's tone deaf. Really, um, we need to come alongside people where they are 
not directly confront their assumptions about goodness and badness and who's worthy of the kingdom, but offers something much more invitational, something much more amenable that then can take them where they need to go. That's that. Uh, Isaac, do you think I heard you right? Yeah, I think so, okay. because okay. I think driving it at them that way, it just it's like anytime you immediately confront somebody about yeah. whatever is true in their life or a belief they have. Yeah. All it does is it sends people to sort of rally around their base even more rather than saying, oh, you're so right. My whole life is a lie. I need to now concede to every point you've made. All right, Steve, pick up from there. Go what direction you want. Uh-oh, I think you're muted. Still muted. Okay, there we let are. me say this about Lawson's quote you read from Lawson. Mm -hmm. In the Reformed tradition, they read a couple of passages in St. Paul. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. Mm -hmm. And they interpret that to mean quite in variance from the early church's understanding of that Pauline language. They mean that to be spiritually dead and utterly inert and incapable, like a corpse is incapable of anything. Sure, yeah. That's, that is a very suspicious Reformation reading of those passages. It grows out of St. Augustine, but you don't find that language in any of the other early fathers of the church in quite the same way. Well, there may be two or three, Ambrose and some others. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean to be dead? Mm -hmm. That's the first thing. In, in the Wesleyan tradition, Wesley didn't think that any human being had the capacity simply on his or her own to respond to God. Right. But he believed that the, the grace of God is at work in every human being to bring them alive enough to God to sense their need, to hear the gospel, to begin to desire something more. Prevent, That's what prevenient grace, grace yeah. was all about in yeah. Wesley. So then, that's the first thing. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, Wesley, he has a sermon in which he ends about original sin. He says, know your sickness and know your cure. Therefore, there's a sense in which original sin is not deadness. It is truly an alienation from our real humanity and in the inability to access on our own what we really are made in the image of God, made for God. So I would just push back on Lawson's exegesis and therefore his application well help that's me not because i'm not a, that's not to, that's not to say that i don't believe that sin is a pervasive horrific and uh una, unavoidable reality in human existence mm -hmm. yeah the the but let, the, me, let me just say this there are other there are other ways that paul talks about people that go to the apologetic issue mm -hmm. okay he, he talks about people um, who have been, whose minds have been darkened. That's Romans chapter one. He also speaks about how the God of this world has blinded their eyes. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just that all of human sinfulness is a willful rejection of God. There is ignorance. There is self-imposed ignorance. And there is also, in some sense, culture and the powers of evil blind people to reality. And so when we're talking about doing apologetics in a way 
that speaks into people's experience of themselves, we're talking about a kind of apologetics that can begin to peel back the falsehoods, peel, cause them to come, come to, to the end of themselves to say, wait a second, the way I've seen my life, the way I've thought about my life, the way I've thought about reality, it doesn't work. It can't be true. We're not talking about a seeker-sensitive apologetics okay. that tries to make the gospel nice and sweet and pretty and all of that that is that is attractive. We're talking about an apologetics in terms of evangelism that confronts people with the limitations of the way that they understand themselves they understand their world, they understand God, et cetera, et cetera. And in that sense, we are talking about offering them the, the very same kind of message that you might get from a reformed apologist. But we, we believe that the grace of God has always gone before and a door is going to be open and it's possible to grab a page and help somebody begin to turn it in their lives. The other thing I would say is this, a part of what we're talking about in terms of apologetics and clarity on Christian dogma is, as Isaac alluded to this, and, and you have alluded to it as well, but the church is not simply meant to be a basket where all of the apples that fall off of God's kingdom tree get collected. The church is meant to be the tree that produces the life of the kingdom. But if the church doesn't think rightly about the gospel, the church doesn't understand deeply the dogma of Christian faith, the view of reality, then the church cannot really be this life-giving tree that is producing Christians, that's producing life, that produces fruit that people who are outside of the church's life might find um, tasty, <laughs> Or, or appealing, or might find um, nourishing. And so a part of what we want to do as well is not just do apologetics that speaks to non-believers, but we want to do apologetics in such a way that Christians begin to say, oh my gosh, I never understood that there was something that could form my mind, not just a faith that could fill my heart, make me feel good about God. So all of this is what we're talking about. And in essence, it's, it's according to how you see humanity. The people resistant to the gospel out of sheer willfulness mm -hmm. and therefore reprobation, yeah. self-reprobation. I, I don't think you would believe that God has eternally reprobated them or self-reprobation. Or is there some sense in which human beings in the complexity of the fallen world, are shaped by powers and principalities, and our minds are darkened, and we're also enslaved by falsehoods. So 1 John says to the church, in 1 John, John says to the church, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the context of 1 John, what is he talking about? He's not talking about just some spiritual demonic personality. He's talking about ideas. Ideas regarding the nature of Christ. Ideas regarding the nature of salvation. Test these things to see whether or not they are of God. And the church doesn't know how to test doctrinal claims. Because the church, especially in the Methodist world, we opted for warm-hearted faith versus hard-headed thinking. 
as my friend, my my friend and uh, who is now with the Lord, Billy Abraham, used to say, we need hard headed Christians and warm hearted Christians if we're going to be real Methodists. So I don't know if that really speaks to the issue that you were wanting me to address, but well, I, I just I, want to explain what we, we are... mean by apologetics that's winsome and is enables people to read the book of their lives more adequately. Well, in, in order to have a conversation that's under four hours, we have to, to paint broadly and use generalizations, but it's worth also acknowledging that the primary winsome apologist of our age was Tim Keller, who was reformed in theology. So to equate um, winsomeness with uh, Wesleyanism might be uh, uh, a bit wrongheaded, but also, I mean, I, I definitely see, and I hear you saying we're not doing seeker-sensitive theology here. There, There is much more to it than just tailoring things to people's felt needs, for sure. Uh, but like many things, there's a continuum where this is a hard truth, and you need to deal with it and submit to it, otherwise you're not a Christian, versus on the other end, this seeker-sensitive, you're basically a good person, we're not going to argue with you about this, life can just be a little bit better. You know, the, I, I don't. I think both of you are wanting to make the case that we can be somewhere in the middle where we don't need to be hellfire and brimstone, but we also don't need to be this enabling um, care bear type thing. So there, there does need to be, I think, some clarity about how Wesleyans do it. Um, having read John Wesley's sermons, it does seem to me that he was much more hellfire and brimstone than, than anything you're going to find on most Methodist pulpits today. And that does seem to have been the primary mode of American evangelism in particular in the American pioneer West. So what is there to say to someone like me? You know, I, and I feel like I've listened to you guys, but I'm, of, I'm still of the mind that um, whether or not that they have been foreordained for all of eternity to be reprobate, that's, I don't understand. I mean, that's God, you know, whether or not he does it. But what I can say is a lot of people sure don't seem drawn. And so in my head, I can either say, well, we need to change the game. Once upon a time, Hellfire and Brimstone worked, but we don't see as many people coming in now, so we need to just change the game. Or uh, say, hey, um, this, this era is just really lost, you know, so, but we can't change the message. We can't change the form of the message. We just need to keep preaching it. And if nobody finds that compelling, then that just means that God has forsaken this time and this place for one reason or another. America is just not a place, the West is not a place that he is pleased to work anymore. He's pleased to work in Asia, he's pleased to work in Africa, he's pleased to work in the Middle East. We have effectively rebuffed God uh, from this continent, and this is what that looks like. You know, to me, that seems like a very sober realization. And then there's a liberty that comes with saying, we're not going to be a majority movement anymore. For a time we were here, we biffed it, now we're going to be a minority. You know, as John MacArthur says, on this side of heaven, we lose right now. And I think there's a freedom that comes with, okay, we don't have to win everybody. And actually, the church, we don't have to make disciples. It's the Holy Spirit that makes disciples, and we get to be a crucible of the Holy Spirit's work. But whether or not the Holy Spirit grabs a lot or just a few, that's up to him, not to us. Um, as, as the global Methodists are trying to figure out their evangelistic approach, as the Association of Independent Methodists is trying to figure out how you're going to reach people that don't find the Reformed vision compelling or, or perhaps aren't even looking at another thing. What is it that you think your approach to doctrine, apologetics, 
evangelism. I hear, I hear, I think both of you saying it really doesn't have to be hellfire and brimstone. And in fact, that's going to speak past people. And if we have, if we have the job right now of reaching the people that we've got, we need to do it in the right way. So, so paint a portrait. And I, I want, I want to end our conversation today on this. I want each of you to paint a portrait of the winsome, um, compelling, faithful, apologetics, evangelistic, um, por- uh, portrayal of the faith that you think that Wesleyanism has to offer, that at the end of this conversation, people are going, man, I want to hear more about that, and I want my church to be thinking seriously about offering this in clarity to our context. So let's let's defer to— Let me me start, and I want Isaac to to close this out, if that's okay. Sure. Um, First and foremost, it seems almost— Jeffrey, to be honest, it's like we've been talking past each other a little bit, mm-hmm. in my view. You've been talking uh, primarily about how do we preach an evangel, how do we present an evangelistic presentation to a lost world or right. to a reprobate world? Mm-hmm. Whereas our focus primarily has been how do we help the church understand the totalizing worldview that is the gospel? Because right now, Methodist people or Christians in evangelicalism in general have kind of picked and choose between certain Christian doctrines that they want to emphasize the love of God. But if you take it out of the totalizing view of the of the gospel, the love of God becomes a squishy feeling kind of thing. Whereas in the totalizing view of the gospel, the love of God also has room for hell, right? Uh, the love of God is the hell is not hell is not in somehow opposition to the love that God is somehow in the mystery of God. Hell is still a part of the love of God. Mm-hmm. So we have to help the church. And this is this is where Isaac and I have had dozens upon dozens upon dozens upon dozens of conversations, as well as opportunities to speak at churches and pre, and to help them think through what they think the gospel is. So that's the first thing that we're interested in Uh is presenting to the church the depth of Christian theological conviction and dogma that traces itself not just back to John Wesley, Uh but through Wesley as a prism to look into what he called primitive Christianity or the life of the early church. That's the first thing. Uh Second thing is this. Um. Even to, even to preach hellfire and brimstone um, requires a worldview. Yes. And this is where I disagree with some aspects of, of the Refor- Reformation apologetics approach. Mm-hmm. Is that if you're chosen by God, for whatever reason, by his will or by his foreknowledge, whatever. Right. If you're just chosen by God, you will respond. And it's going to be this mystical, mysterious thing that may even bypass your own cognitive faculties. Right. Yeah. Somehow it's going to speak to something deep inside of you mm-hmm. and you're going to respond. Yeah. Irresistible grace. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that God created us in such a way that we ought to take our, I, I think that the Roman Catholic apologists of the Middle Ages, Aquinas, Scotus, and others, Saints Bonaventure, all of those people are much better clues for us 
about how do we take the gospel and present it in a culture mm -hmm. that speaks to other people's lives in their other world view. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we don't, we may have to change, quote, the form and how we, how we get people into the conversation, whether it's in the church or outside of the church, but we never change the content. We just figure out how do I express this content in a way that could engage their minds if I'm supposed to be an instrument of the Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. an instrument of grace as a witness for Christ, then how, how does that how is that going to work? So I think the, the winsomeness comes from, first of all, loving people, acknowledging that their life matters, acknowledging that their experiences matter, and at the same time, loving them enough to begin, if they're not within the church, but loving them enough to begin to say to them, maybe the way that you understand your life is just absolutely false. Mm -hmm. And let's take all these things in consideration. Now, I'm going to end there, and I'm going to pass it over to Isaac. But Isaac, I'd like for you to talk about the winsomeness and the cultural the cultural um, application, especially in light of some of the conversations you've had with me regarding Acts, uh, Acts chapter 17. But talk about Paul as an example of culturally appropriate apologetics, and then speak into how, as a young man, you see this working especially among folks in your generation. Isaac, I'm sorry. Just You can do that, but my main thing was I wanted you to paint a portrait that was invitational to my audience, so if you wouldn't mind putting a priority on that and then fit in those other things as you see fit. Go ahead, buddy. Right. So what I think has to happen is this. I think for the vast majority of, of just people in general, I mean, I don't know where you would draw like the – the age line that this would maybe become less applicable, but I would think that the majority of people living in the Western world, especially this is the message that has to be true to them because every, everything for us. I mean, you know, if you just like think a thought and then you get on the internet, it, the ads mysteriously pop up, right? I mean, it's like everything is reading your mind and competing for your attention. And then we, we do a poor job as the church of competing for people's attention outside of like what we can give them at the bare minimum to be the most convenient for them. And then we wonder why it has such a low priority in people's lives and not just attending church for Christians, but just Christianity in as, as a whole, like, Oh, why, why is this not as important to you? And I think that is because we don't compete for people's attention and lives in the same way. I think the fire hellfire and brimstone worked um, in the 18th century and then during uh, the Second Great Awakening, because that was sort of what was culturally relevant at the time. I mean, the 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 United States, when Second Great Awakening happens over here, it's it's pretty intense. I mean, it's a brutal place. And when you can have a lot of brutality or people living much harder lives, you can come at them with a hard message that's sort of meets them there. And so it has an applicable place, but maybe it only has a more historically applicable place. And then now we have to say, okay, that maybe that was really effective because that's what was needed then. But what is needed now? Um, and I think now what has to happen is we have to replace people's worldview in, in a way that says this is everything you're being taught. 
This is everything you may think is true or is not true. And here is why it fails. Scientifically, here's why it fails. Philosophically, here's why it fails. Logically, mm -hmm. and here's why it's just a really stupid idea mm -hmm. to have in belief. And I think young people respond in a lot of ways. You know, there's this sort of this trend um, in, in among young people, and it's, you know, everybody brings receipts. Sort of that, that idea, oh, bring your receipts. It's like if you get on Twitter or X, as it's called now, you know, I mean, that's sort of the thing. Somebody may try to delete a tweet, but someone has always either saved it or screenshotted it. I mean, it exists. Yes. You want to prove something to somebody, then he, here are your receipts, if you will, mm -hmm. for why your point is more valid. Yeah. People love when there's an argument and you can show citation. I mean, that's sort of what we get out of the enlightenment and everybody sort of clung to it is you have to be able to, to cite your sources and show where something comes from. And I think a lot of pastors can't do it because they just, they're not educated enough. That's just plain and simple. They're just not educated enough. And maybe they should rethink their position as a leader uh, if that's where they are. Mm -hmm. But you have to be able to meet and invite people in that way. Here is what the culture believes. And here's why it's wrong. And then here's what I will prove to you. Paul does that in Acts 17. He's in Athens. Right. He's yeah. waiting to meet back up with his friends. And he's having a conversation in the Epicureans and the Stoics where for them doing philosophy was life. And if right. Paul's there during the first century, I mean, this is coming after several hundred years of the pre-Socratic period of Socrates, of Aristotle, of Plato, of Greek philosophy really taking place. I mean, Zeno, who's the founder of Stoicism, he's fourth century BC. Uh, Epicurus, he's ancient like that too. I mean, they're hundreds of years. So these philosophers, man, they know what they believe is true about reality. But Paul, because of where Paul lived uh, in Tarsus, he had this really interesting sort of education. Like Tarsus is this vassal state of Rome because of the way they did port, they, they imported goods and they traded. So he's given citizenship and he's educated first as a Roman citizen and under Greek philosophy. I mean, when he goes to the Areopagus, Paul is citing Aratus and this invocation that Aratus, who was... Uh, a Greek poet writes this invocation to Zeus during the third century BC. Paul knows it. Paul is riffing off of Greek poetry. How many pastors could quote a single secular source and use it to apply to a young person's life to then set up and tear down maybe an obstacle they have in their worldview? Almost very few, right? I mean, that's why I do what I do is because most pastors can't, can't do that. Um, and then Paul sits there and he says, this is everything you believe in, in Stoicism. This is sort of your ontological worldview. Epicureans, this is your ontological worldview. This is what you believe to be true about the divine. This is what you believe to be true about human destiny. But I am here to tell you that you get this close to being right. And then you get it horribly, drastically wrong. And here is the reality of Jesus. And as it tells us at the end of Acts 17, there are people who sort of take every single position. Some walk away and mock him. Some want to hear some more because they like philosophical debate. And other people convert. And then it lists a few of the converts. Dionysius, the Areopagite, and somebody. I mean, the, what happens there is Paul doesn't go in and say, all of you are going to hell. Paul goes in and he says, this is pretty interesting. Like, you're, you're very interested in reality. And you really want to know what is truth. And what is real? And how should you think about your own existence? And I'm here to tell you 
that this is how you should think of your existence in light of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Because what they bring him to the Areopagus for is they think he's preaching about a God named Jesus and in a God named resurrection. So two gods. And Paul corrects them. is like, no, this is one God resurrected completely from the dead. And that blows their minds. And that is, I think, what winsome apologetics looks like today. You go in and you say, okay, what is the worldview that is sort of sitting front and center in people's lives? So do I need to talk about human sexuality? Maybe so. Maybe you just really need to reorient people in basic biology. Maybe you need to reorient people on what are the dangers of socialism or communism? Like, Why are these worldviews, these philosophical views, they're not just economic views. What do these entail for your entire life? And is this what you really want to be true about sort of the meaning and purpose of your life? Because if it's not, then maybe for young people, they shouldn't embrace these more uh, liberal ideals like, like socialism. Maybe Christianity offers far more to people than just, okay, so there's salvation or there's damnation. But maybe Christianity comes in and it says, your life has meaning and purpose, and this is why. Your present life has extreme meaning and purpose, and this is why. in your future has infinite meaning and purpose, because this is why. And you bring them into that, and you can undergird sort of a worldview for them, and you can also bring in the gospel. So now you're giving people where they go, you know, I like this. Christianity is so much more than I thought it was. Uh It's more than just trying to remember a few Bible verses and maybe some stories that I'm supposed to take literal or not. Or maybe it's more than just Jesus loves you and we show up to church on a couple of Sundays and maybe what is needed. And I think this is what is needed is you have to bring it in to the broader conversation of people's lives. And when you do that, that's how I think apologetics begins to win the day. Because that's the great thing about apologetics. It reaches into sort of every discipline to bring Christianity um, as a very viable option and a very logically and coherent option. It has to reach into other uh, religious worldviews. It has to talk on philosophy. It has to understand science. It has to understand just cultural ideas and to say, okay, so let's talk about Christianity and then X, Y, or Z, whatever it is. Um, and sure, maybe it doesn't convert people over, but I think it, what it can do is it can it can build a much stronger, it can paint a much better picture of the Christian worldview, of a Christian belief in what a life that comes to know and be changed by Jesus actually looks like rather than one that just tries to cherry pick from maybe something that worked in the 18th century or cherry picks uh, something that seems to be maybe personally edifying uh, for one pastor who might be in his 60s and he's trying to reach a group of people who are 20s and 30s, right? We need to say, who am I trying to reach and how do I get my message to them? Because this will be what I, this will be how I, I finish this. If we were all working uh, in the just in the corporate world, trying to do some type of marketing for the for for Christianity, right? We would all probably be fired because we do such a poor job of trying to win people's attention and and market and make it desirable and palatable. I think what we do is we say, "Oh, if we water it down, it'll be desirable." But why can't Christianity, as it really is, ancient and historically, not desirable? I think it is, but I think it's poorly communicated 
as such. And I think it's poorly communicated because most pastors either don't want to do it or they don't know how to do it because they're just not educated enough to do it. But there is always the opportunity to become more educated. And there should be the desire to say, if this is what I have to do to communicate the gospel more clearly to people, then I will do that. I think that's what Wesley did. I think that's what has always been successful um, in the since Wesley and in, in, in Wesleyanism and in Methodism in particular, is that what is it that right now today speaks to the culture? And that's what they did. And we look back and we go, well, maybe God's left the West. Well, maybe so. But maybe God is waiting on us to just stop being lazy and to actually re-engage culture where they are and to have these kinds of conversations. Maybe that's what we need. All right. Well, I appreciate you guys uh, painting a, a tag team and painting a portrait for everybody and and offering uh, a way to present a biblical worldview. Um, I'm going to end with the hardest question of all, and you have 30 seconds to answer it, each of you. What is the number one best resource that you would offer, encourage people to, to consult for um, knowing and claiming good Christian doctrine? Number one. I would say the best place to look, and I would just throw this out. Uh, people need to start reading the church fathers, wherever, whatever source they get for that. That's what I would say. Go and find the writings of the church fathers and say, if what I believe does not align with what they taught and were believing, then maybe I need to rethink Christianity. Maybe I need to rethink what my view of Christianity is in light of what the ancient church came to form and believe about the resurrected Christ. All right, I'll uh, I'll try and follow up with Isaac and get uh, a rec one recommended resource that's a compendium of the Church Fathers for people who don't know where to start with that. Uh, Steve, singular resource for uh, understanding Christian doctrine. Singular resource for understanding Christian doctrine. Um, I would say that. Um, There is a, a book that was written years ago by a guy named Harold O.J. Brown, and it was just entitled Heresies. Nice. That's a great in which title. He deals, he deals with the earliest heresies of the church and how the church responded to it. Cool. So, yes, for one, I would yeah. recommend Harold O.J. Brown on that. Okay. And then Robert Wilkins' book, The Spirit of Early Christianity, is, numbered, is another one. Okay. All right. Well, let's let's make sure to have links to those for uh, any viewers uh, who who spent time with us. Uh, appreciate everybody who who uh, watches the channel, engages the different guests that I have. If you want to follow up with either of these gentlemen, we'll uh, put whatever contact information they're comfortable with in the show notes. If you like me having these conversations, then go over to plainspoken.locals.com and support my work, and then go ahead and and follow me whatever on whatever social media platforms you're on. All right. Thanks, everybody, for uh, joining in. We're going to conclude this one. I'll see you folks next time. Bye-bye.